Amen. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Central. After that song, should we go to God in prayer and um, just ask that what was just sung would be uh, true in our own hearts? Let's pray together, shall we? Oh, Father, we do really pray from the bottom of our hearts that your word would speak. And that if nothing else this morning, we would just find ourselves at a loss for words in knowing that that's okay. So, Father, wherever we find ourselves, whether we're new in the faith, whether we're starting again in the faith, where we're returning to the faith, or even where we've been at this faith a long time, we just pray that you would speak and show us where we are and who you are. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Welcome again. Uh, if you don't know who I am, this is the first time I've actually spoken uh, this year, and uh, this is unusual for me. And I think in 25 ministry years or something, I've always spoken on the first Sunday. So for me to um, be this far out when it comes to giving a message, I- I'm in really new territory, but I think it's good territory to be in because I actually fulfilled a commitment that I made to my wife that I would accompany her to one of her ultra, ultra, ultra long races. And the one she seems to choose to do for some reason is Florida in January. Does anybody in Michigan understand why that would be? And uh, the race was uh, last weekend and uh, Vipka decided that she would only do 100 kilometers this time, which is 62 miles. And I made a, a commitment that I would actually go down while she ran. And so I went and the weather went with me. It was like 48. It was cold. She ran to keep warm, and I kind of sat there and got cold. That's kind of the way it worked. But what was funny is, in planning this trip, Vipka kind of needs, when you do like these ultra marathons, she's done 100 miles, you've got to have what you call a crew. So Vipka was working out the crew. Well, a friend of ours down there decided that they were going to do, I think it was 50 kilometers. So Vipka thought, okay, I'll run the first 50 kilometers with him. And then Amy Parker came down as well, and uh, a friend of ours, and um, Amy said, okay, I'll do this spot. Well, then it was like, okay, I said, okay, I'll do 10. She was like, what was that? I'm like, I'll do 10. If she didn't catch that, I said, I do 10. I said it quickly for her to say, no, it's okay. And she looked at me with a smile on her face and said, okay. And then she said, a little radical, isn't it? When was the last time you ran 10? I said, before we were married. (laughs) And she was like, "Uh, so what are you going to do? I said, I'll jump on a treadmill once. I'll be fine. (laughs) And um, she's like, really? And uh, so I did. I jumped on the treadmill once and got two and a half miles in. I thought, I'll be fine. (laughs) What I was really thinking was, you know, I would have been fine at one stage in my life. Am I going to be fine now? Well, I better find out because I'm not getting any younger. My body is not getting any younger. This is probably a really good thing for me to do to find out where I really am, right? So that's honestly the way I approach this thing. So we go down there, and uh, true enough, Vipka and Amy have worked it all out, and mile 39 was mine. Okay, for mile 39, and the great thing was I could stop after six, Amy would jump in for four, and then I could run the last four towards the end. 
Okay, and I thought, I, th- I think I can do this. And guess what? I actually did it. I didn't injure myself. What was really funny is just when it was about uh, in the morning, Vipka starting off, and once you go back to one of the aid stations, she looked at me and she said, oh, by the way, you need to hydrate before you run. And I kind of laughed at that, hydrate. That's the kind of phrase that people who run on a treadmill once a week use, right? I, I don't run. I don't, I don't need to use the word hydrate. So I looked at her and said, yes, hon, I'll drink some water before I run. Because that's basically what it is when you don't run. So we got through this thing, and, and we actually did it. I did 10 miles. I didn't injure myself. I didn't hurt myself. And at the end of it, Vipka looked at me and said, wow, I didn't think you could do that. And I said, well, I'm not stupid. I wasn't doing it at mile 9. Mile 39, you've slowed up a bit, I hope. Um, but I felt, I felt really, really good with it. And I felt really good with it because I recognized that there is something that is really important for me to accept. I need to accept that my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and I'm getting to the age where I need to take more care of it. That's actually a minimal. It's a minimum requirement that I have as a follower of Jesus to take care of my body. But there's also a radical side to this thing too, isn't there? The radical side to this is zero to 10 is pretty stupid. I think we'd all agree with that, right? So there, there we've got the radical side of this. Hey, the, the way that you've expressed this bare minimum is, is a little radical, but it's necessary. Last week, Pastor Steve challenged us with the idea of a radical minimum, namely that prayer... And beginning prayer, even by taking a chair and sitting on it, five minutes reading the Bible, ten minutes praying, would be a radical step for many people. But the reality is, it's also a bare minimum. And so the idea behind this series of radical minimum is to expose us to bare minimums and challenge us to do something radical for 28 days in the hope that what is now radical will become normal next month. And guess what would happen? If what is now radical becomes normal next month, where does your radical line then find itself? If reading the Bible and praying for you, which are minimums of following the faith, following Jesus in the Christian faith, actually seem radical, what would happen to your faith if you start doing the radical minimum next month? How would it change? I think we got a glimpse of that just a couple of weeks ago, didn't we, with Panna and Sandy on the stage here, campus pastors from Southeast Asia? Do you think they would ever have believed it? The moment that they put their faith in Jesus Christ, one from a Buddhist background, the other one from an Islamic background, do you think they would have ever believed it? That they would one day find themselves snowmobiling in Michigan on a snowy day in January and freezing? You know they only had flip-flops when they arrived? (laughs) See, the radical step for them was actually putting their faith in Jesus at that point in time. And then the radical became normal and the lines were redrawn. And what we're saying in this series is, look, there are some things that seem to be so radical to us. And the bottom line is, these are bare essentials of following Jesus. And so our aim in this series is not to radicalize you, but dare I even say it, to Christianize many of us. 
to actually bring us to the point that those things that are bare minimums for following Jesus, we do. Not because we have to, but because we love doing it. And the real question behind all of this is, why does the bare minimum seem so hard? Why does it seem so radical? The other side of that is, why, why does this also seem so legalistic, right? And so my task today is really to take us through how we approach the Bible in a message entitled, Who's Reading Who? Who's Hearing Who? God has really impressed something on my heart that began a number of years ago as I went through seminary. I went to seminary as a, an 18-year-old uh, boy. I was very young, and I went to a really academic environment, and it really challenged me to think. And as I was going through the, all of this, I, I'm finding myself thinking a lot, but my, I feel that my heart is getting, my heart is getting harder. And, and into my mind in that moment, God dropped this phrase into my mind that was basically, Craig, it's not simply about reading the Bible. It's about the Bible reading you. And so for 20 plus years, I've just had this phrase in my head. It's not about reading the Bible. It's really about the Bible reading me. And over the last few months, God has really impressed on me what the difference between the two is. And I want to share that with you today. I've talked on the Bible a lot in my ministry, but this is the first time in my ministry I'm ever talking about the Bible like this. And I know that in a room of this size, with people in here, we've got people who are just starting in the faith. They are seeking things about the faith. They are returning to the faith. And then there are some of us who've been in the faith an awful long time. And the great thing with this message is I believe that wherever you find yourself on that spectrum, God's got something to say to you about the way you approach the Word. God's got something to say to you. And so engaging in the Bible is a basic requirement, a bare minimum of truly following Jesus. And yet the fact is, while Americans love the Bible, while we love the Bible over here, we don't read it. A study done by Lifeway last year, April of 2017, found out that 9 out of 10 homes in America possess a Bible, and the average home possesses at least three. However, only 22% of people read even a little portion of their Bible every day. Now, that number raises, rises rather, to 49% amongst evangelicals, which is kind of what we would be classified as. So if that stat is true, and that stat is a lot higher than what other research has shown, uh, has shown it to be, if that stat is true, then one out of every two people here are reading a little piece of the Bible every day. One out of two. The challenge is, what would it be like if every follower of Jesus read the Bible every day? What, what do you think would happen then? What would happen to you? What would happen to our church? What would happen to our town? What would happen to our nation? But the reality is, why we love the Bible? Not many of us are actually reading it. And I think the reason for that is that many of us struggle to read the Bible because we don't know or don't allow the Bible to read us. And there's a difference between the two. 
And of all of the good things that the Reformation with Martin Luther did for the church, it also created two approaches to reading the Bible, and American evangelicalism is basically driven, by dominant, driven dominantly by one of these strands, and unfortunately what that has produced is a view of having time with God that is sterile and for many of us feels boring. And so the reason many of us struggle to read the Bible is because we don't know what it's like to allow the Bible to read us. So what I want to do today is I want to walk us through that. And I pray that you will go away from here today realizing that if you're a follower of Jesus, the Bible can actually speak to you. The Spirit of God can speak to you through the Bible. My text today is a simple text, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. If you grab the Bible from the pews, that's on page 1206. And uh, we're just going to look at these two verses. And here we see the two approaches to engaging with the Scriptures right here in this verse. Hebrews, 12, uh, Hebrews 4, rather, verses 12 and 13. It's on the screen as well. For the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That's it. What I love about this this section of the Scriptures is that it tells us that the Word of God is not a dead text of an ancient age. It's the dynamic power of the ancient of days. This is the Bible. It's a living Word. It is active. And because it's active, there are responses that we need to make to it. Hebrews 3.12, God is a living God. Hebrews 4.12, this living God has given us a living word, and we need to respond. And the first response we need to make according to this text is we need to embrace it. We need to receive it. We need to hold it. We need to wield it. The text starts by saying in verse 12a, for the word of God is alive and active. The activity of the Word of God in the Scriptures is often referred to as being sword-like. It's, being, it's a sword in the hand that is being wielded and used. So we read in Ephesians six seventeen, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. If we were to go on from this in Revelation chapter 1, verse 12, 2, 15, and then at the end, we'd see the same thing. Once the Spirit of God speaks to the churches, there is a sword coming out of God's mouth. When God speaks, it wields authority and power that the people reading it and hearing it need to embrace. We need to embrace God's Word. And so in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is keen to point out that the Word of God is the living Word of a living God. And we take hold of God's Word because it is the living Word of a living God, but get this, given to us for other people. It's given to us for other people. Hebrews 13, verses 7 and 8. Remember your leaders who spoke the Word of God to you. Are you hearing it? 
Hence our icon today, headphones. Are you hearing it? Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So what was true of Jesus yesterday is true of Jesus today. When you hear God's word spoken to you, when you read it and you hear God speak to you, the responsibility that we have is to embrace it. And so the word of God in Hebrews 4.12 refers to the truth of God disclosed in Scripture that one human speaks and another human hears. But here's the point. In order to speak God's word, you need to know God's word. God's word shared with other people is powerful. And for those of you who are new in the faith, returning to the faith, getting more serious about your faith, reading the Bible is the best first step that you can possibly take. Now, choosing to do that is a radical step. There's no doubt about it. But I need to be honest with you. It's a bare minimum of following Jesus. So where do you start? You can start by jumping on board with 28 days of radical minimum. It takes about 21 days to form a habit. So we're what, seven, eight days in, you start today, you can still make this a habit. And why is this so important? What's important is what happens to you as you listen and as you read and as you embrace God's Word. Listen to these words. They're not on a screen from uh, Paul writing to Timothy, his last words to Timothy before he died. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 7. Paul says this, think over what I say. Think over what I say. In other words, think over what you're hearing. Think over what is being spoken to you as you open God's Word. Why should you think over it? It means to reflect. To think means to reflect. Paul goes on, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. That's why you embrace it. It has power. And as you embrace it, the first part of our bodies, in a sense, that are kind of impacted in Ephesians 4.12 is the mind. The mind is impacted because the Word of God is a living Word of a living God. And when we think, reflect on, chew on, digest what is being said to us from God's Word, something happens. Something happens when you read the Bible. Firstly, when you read the Bible, the Bible engages the head. You think about it. You reflect on it. And you get understanding. Secondly, when you read the Bible, it deepens your convictions. This is belief. Mental, intellectual assent to certain truths about the world, about us, and about God. that are always true. Belief. When you read the Bible, your perspective is challenged. This is the issue of worldview. At the start of this year, Vipka, and start of every year, Vipka makes this commitment to read through the Bible in 90 days. And, and I remember when she started doing this, I thought, wow, for some people reading through the Bible in a year is cool, but 90 days? And one night we were sitting there, she was sitting by the, sitting by the fire, and she said, you know what, I think I'm going to put this online in Facebook and see how many people want to do this with me. And so we formed a, a small group, and I think it's about over 100 people doing this right now. And what's really interesting with this is some of the conversations that have started to come out. And, and just yesterday, somebody was uh, bold enough to say, you know, I've really struggled 
with reading through the Bible in one year. And so the thought of reading through it in 90 days was just so overwhelming to me. I didn't know whether I could do it. But here's what I've discovered. It is so good reading so many chapters at one time because I feel like I'm kind of going through the Bible at 30,000 feet and I'm starting to see how a lot of this stuff all fits together. Worldview. Worldview. When you read the Bible, it engages your mind. You start to understand. It deepens your convictions. And all of a sudden, worldviews shift. Worldviews shift. And then something else happens. Reading the Bible invites speech, learning, kind of Hebrew style. You see, in the Hebrew culture, in the Jewish culture, learning isn't done by a teacher standing at the front, okay? And all of the students are there sitting in their desk, and the teacher speaks, and the students write things down. That's the way it works for us. In Hebrew culture, learning is driven by conversation. Oh, boy, you should have seen some of the questions we had in this closed group when we got to Leviticus. That was fun. Vivka looked at me one night and said, you know, you're going to have to answer some of these. And I said, no, I don't want to be the Bible answer man. It invites conversation because your worldview is being shifted. It's not as if it's all easy. There are parts of the Bible that just aren't nice. They're tough. But as you start to read it, your mind is triggered, your beliefs are developed, your worldview shifts, and you start to have conversations. And guess what? Conversations are a really good thing. The next thing that happens is truth is prioritized. You just realize that God does have certain absolute things to say on some very difficult topics. You start to grab that. You start to realize that that's true. Then then there's this other thing that happens. You start to realize that church history really kind of does matter. The, The way the church has actually dealt with some of these topics and the positions that the church have come down on things actually is really, really important. We need to be disciplined in those. We need to be discipled according to those. And then lastly, you start to read the Bible and you realize, you know what? This isn't just about me. God has given me his word for me to share this word with other people. Other people matter to God, and that's why he's given me the Bible. See, because God's Word is alive and active, He wants you to embrace it. And as you embrace it, you start to change. And the first kind of component in your body that changes is really your mind. Why? Because the Bible says that God wants you to have the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ. How can we have the mind of Christ if we don't embrace the very words that tell us who Christ is? And what would it look like for you and for me if we had the mind of Christ in the challenges that we're facing even now? What would change? Because the Word of God is alive and it is active. And for that reason, we need to embrace it. And it may sound radical or even legalistic to say it's a bare minimum. But that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It means that I want to be like Jesus. How do I know what Jesus is like if I don't read? If I don't embrace Christ in his word? Now, the second component here is we need to engage. 
with God's word. We need to engage with it. The second part of Hebrews is incredible. This is what it says, the same text from 12b and 13. It's why we need to engage with it. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God's word has a penetrative quality to it that enables hidden things to be seen. One commentator by the name of Lane, William Lane, wrote this. The word of God poses a judgment that is more threatening and sharper than any double-edged sword because it exposes the intentions, what does it say there, of the mind, the heart, exposes the intentions of the heart and renders one's def- one defenseless before God's scrutinizing gaze. See, this is it. When, when we start to read God's Word, God's Word starts to read us, and we become vulnerable before God's scrutinizing gaze. If the first act of reading the Bible kind of develops our mind, the second aspect of being read by the Bible softens our heart. And over and over again, I say the heart work is the hardest work of being a follower of Jesus. So the Bible's supposed to read us. And when the Bible starts to read us, certain things happen. It engages the heart. And that is inspirational. Even even though sometimes it's conviction, it brings repentance. We realize what we said, we shouldn't have said. What we've done, we shouldn't have done. There's an inspirational quality to that because we realize God's grace covers us. It also deepens compulsion. Faith. See, when we read the Bible, it deepens belief, conviction. You may believe that you're a child of God, and you may believe that Jeremiah 29, 11 and 12 is true for you, that God is good in store for you, that the bad that is going on right now is not God's will for you. You may believe that. What's going on in your heart? Are you acting on that in faith? See, when the Bible starts to read us, it's not about the head, it's about the heart. And it challenges our attitudes. It's about character development. We just realize we're not who we should be, but we thank God we're not what we used to be. It does something. It also invites stillness, that song, Word of God Speak. I find myself not being able to say a word. It's okay. This prioritizes subjectivity. It's about the affections, the emotions, our feelings, our will. When God's words speak to us, speaks to us, it's about who we are. What God is doing in us. It individualizes the pursuit. It's not so much about the community anymore, what is God calling us to do. All of a sudden, when the Bible starts reading you, it's what is God calling you to do? And I'll say it again. The biggest untapped missional force in the church is right here. Right here. 
when the Bible starts to read you, all of a sudden, where you're going in life with Him becomes more real. It also personalizes reflection. When the Bible starts to read you, you hear announcements like, oh, we're having a baptism on February the 11th, and you start to ask yourself, because you're reading the Word and you realize in the New Testament that baptism actually follows salvation, not precedes it, and you find yourself asking, oh God, do you want me to get my baptism in the right order? It's reflection. See, when the Bible speaks to you, when the Bible reads you, it's not so much about the head, it's about the heart. Now, this latter part about the Bible reading us, I believe to be really, really important for those of us who've been in the church and in the Christian faith for way too long. Way too long. The biggest problem we have reading the Bible is that we know it. It's predictable. We find ourselves skipping words, skipping sentences, skipping paragraphs because, oh, I know this part. So how do we get from where we are to allowing God to speak to us through his word? This so many messages that could be given on this one. But I want to offer three thoughts. Firstly, I want to say you know that the Bible is starting to read you when you suffer with what is called sweaty palm syndrome. Sweaty palm syndrome. The idea here is very simple. The idea is that when the yawn of familiarity and predictability is being replaced with a sense of the presence and the awe of God, then the Bible is starting to read you. Now, this week, so many more people came to me and said, wow, Craig, you ran 10 miles, in two goals, but 10 miles, than they did. Wow, Victor ran 100 kilometers. Why? Because I'm predictable. Craig, in 10 miles, the only running I do when people ask me is away from Bipka's invites for me to start running. I didn't run 10 miles because I wanted to run. I ran 10 miles because I wanted to support my wife, and I need to do something to see where I am and keep my body in shape. Why do people ask me? They ask me because I'm predictable. They ask me because I'm, it's familiar. They ask me because, wow, that's really different. Some of you approach the Bible in kind of the same way that I approach running. And when something happens that's untoward, then it totally and utterly surprises you. Many of your Bible reading efforts are as predictable as my running. And you know that you are being read by the Bible when that yearn of familiarity is being replaced with a sense of, wow, God's here. God's here. Secondly, you know that you're being read by the Bible when you're moving from candlelight to consuming flame. In our house, we, we kind of love candles, and we'll often, it's nothing, not unusual to see uh, when I get up in the morning, Vipka there with a candle lit during a quiet time. That's, for many years in our marriage, that's the way it's been. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's really good. 
But when you're being read by God, it's as if what happens in this moment is that this candle turns to a consuming flame. In the words of John Wesley, it's as if my heart is becoming strangely warmed. God's opening your eyes to things that, about yourself you've never seen before. Actions, character flaws, hurts, habits, or even truth about him and his holiness and his goodness. And you're just thinking, oh no, God is here. That's what Hebrews 4.13 says, right? God sees us inside out. And this results in a real transparency because we know we cannot hide anything from him. Let me ask you, those of you who've been in the faith a long time, when was the last time the consuming flame of God's presence enveloped you? Last year, in the fall, I found myself dry. I've got regular routines that I try to use to keep myself spiritually alive. One of those involves going away a number of times a year to kind of what we would call third world countries. I could say third world country, first like first world Christians. You know, those people have got nothing and they're just so sold out for Jesus. I find myself, even though I'm teaching them head, they're teaching me a lot of heart. I love going to places. Last year I only went once. We had so much going on. It was my choice. I could have gone, but I just found myself here. Towards the end of the year, I found myself getting dry. It wasn't as if I wasn't reading Scripture. I was reading Scripture. The point is, Scripture wasn't reading me. And so towards the end of the last fall, I needed to make a conscious decision to decrease the amount of Scripture I was reading, to make sure that I was pouring over each Scripture, asking God to reveal Himself to me again. Any of you ever been there? We all get there. And one of the biggest frustrations about this relationship with God is that we've made, in the words of Tim Keller in his fantastic book on prayer, we've made this whole idea of a quiet time into a rational exercise, not on an affectional encounter. Keller's right. And that was true for me last year. And it's probably true for a lot of us at some points in time, when was the last time the candlelight was replaced with a consuming fire? Some of you are sitting here saying, Craig, I'm so hard right now that so much of my faith is in my head, I don't even know how to begin to make that shift. This third thing may help. Take time to remember. That's what I did. I just made a list. Of all of those scriptures that God had given to me that I could remember in that moment in prayer, that God had given to me at, at certain points in my, in my journey. And I just looked up those scriptures and I made a little note. What happened? When was it? Why? And then I just prayed over those. And I just realized how many times God had just intervened in my own life just through reading these scriptures and reliving those moments. You see... In the Old Testament, remembering wasn't belief, it was faith. Not to remember was an act of unbelief. When we remember what God has done, it affects our heart. If you find yourself hard sometime over, over the next week, spend some time reliving some of those scriptures in which God became alive for you. Now, here's the truth. Reading the Bible 
and being read by the Bible are equally important but uniquely distinct activities. I saw some of you saw this in the first, taking out the camera, and when I pause, you would take a photograph. This is the one you should have taken the photograph of. And if you want this, by the way, you can find it online with the slides uh, online, and you'll be able to go and get this. But look at this. Can you, can you see this? Each of these is unique and distinct, but both are important. Both of them are important. Now, depending on your season of life, one of these is probably going to be more important than the other one. Are you new in the faith? Are you returning to the faith? Are you seeking the faith? Reading the Bible is a really good place to begin. Jumping on board with the 28 days of radical minimum is a really good thing. It affects your head. You start to understand what God's mind is, what the mind of Christ is for you. Have you been in the faith for a long time and your quiet times fall into the same kind of mold as what Keller said? It's about the intellect, not the heart. That's where you need to be. Now again, I'm in a season where I'm reading the Bible in 90 days. I'm in that season where this is kind of what we're doing right now. Some of us may well be in a season where this is what we're doing right now. But both of these go together. To be a follower of Jesus is to have the, the mind of Christ and the heart of the Father. Which one of these do you think is more important? The answer is all of them. Both of these are important. This sounds so logical, so normal, right? Not controversial. But what I've just done here, for those of you who are church historians, you, you'll know this. this. What I've put on the screen here with kind of being read by the Bible, it's all about the heart and the internals, and, and then reading the Bible, it's about having the mind of Christ and thinking right in a world that's so wrong, actually explains the challenge that the Protestant, I'm going to use that, that the Protestant church has had in the world since, through Martin Luther and Zwingli and Calvin and the other reformers, the church broke out of the Catholic stronghold. Because you see, there are kind of two streams in the American evangelical movement. The first stream I'm going to talk about is what I'm going to label as Puritan. I could label it include Anabaptist and other people like that, but the Puritan is a very good kind of umbrella term. The Puritans were a set of religious leaders, Christian uh, priests, in the Church of England who during the time and roughly after the time of the 30-year war, I'll explain that in a second, looked at the Church of England and basically said there are still elements of popist incorrect theology that need to be corrected. They looked at what was going on in Europe through John Calvin. They embraced a number of his teachings of Calvinism and they set out to kind of reform the Church of England from the inside by getting the Church of England to think right. 
This Puritan movement happened in Europe as well. There was persecution. Essentially what happened was after the Reformation with Martin Luther, there was the Holy Roman Empire and the Holy Roman Emperor, who was the protector of the Catholic Church, waged war against all of these people that embraced the, the new Protestant okay, uh, religion or Protestant Christianity. And there was a period from 1618 to 1648 called the Thirty Year Wars where the church was basically fighting against one another. And the end of that was that basically the peace of Augsburg, I believe it was, was signed. And basically there were certain regions that had a king or a prince and that the church was protected by the king and the prince. And these reform movements that I'm talking about, Puritanism, I'll talk about the other one in a second, came up from within there. And many of those people, okay, fled Europe. Where do you think they ended up? Over here. So the Puritan movement really was about getting the head right. There was another movement. The other movement was the Pietist movement. One of the influential guys there is a guy by the name of Jacob, Jacob Spenner. He was born just before the Thirty Year War and lived through it and ministered extensively after it. And Spenner was in the, the German city of Frankfurt, or Frankfurt as it was called back then, and he would walk through the streets. And in his memoirs, in his book, he, he basically wrote down, here I am walking through the streets of Frankfurt, listening to the Word of God being preached in every pulpit, but the problem is no one's listening to it. No one's listening to it. Their hearts are so far away from it. Here we are fighting over God's word when we should be loving the world. And so he started to focus on what was happening in the heart. And he started a movement called this pietist movement that actually started to reach into existing churches and make a church within a church. And and unlike the Puritans who focused on the head, the pietists focused on the heart Spanner influenced a guy called Zinzendorf. Zinzendorf influenced a guy called John Wesley. John Wesley was an Anglican minister. tried to seek this reform in Anglicanism. Episcopal Church within Anglicanism was basically kicked out. Methodism started. The Wesleyan Church comes from Methodism. Isn't it ironic? Here we are in Holland, which is the what? Puritan heartland? And we're in a what? A pietist church. Did you all know that? See, the Wesleyans will emphasize the heart. The Reformed will emphasize the mind. Confessions, the liturgy. What I love about what God has done in Central is that he has brought these two traditions together. Heart and mind. Because that's where they need to be. And you know what is amazing? If you look at the mainline six denominations in America, the second 30-year war from 1914 to 1944, it changed the the shape. Denominations have started. But if you have a look at denominations in America, they are slowly starting to crumble because God is doing a new work where once what divided us divides us no more. And we realize there is beauty in so many traditions. That's what God is doing. And I I love this. I love being a part of a church where we respect and we can just embrace that reformed influence that challenges the mind, that reminds us that the church is here to usher in the rule and the reign of Christ on earth, that our faith isn't just for us, it's for the world. 
But I also cherish the fact of our heritage that actually says who we are becoming on the inside is so important to what God is going to do out there. So listen, if you want to read your Bible properly, you're going to have to allow God to change your mind on some things that he doesn't agree with you on. If you want to read your Bible properly, then you're going to have to allow God to change those parts of your heart that are hardened. In short, what we need is for the Word of God to speak. And again, I don't know where you are in your Christian faith. If you are starting seeking or returning. Read the Bible. It is the living word of a living God. If you've been in the faith for a long time, do not allow your heart to become hard. Pray when you read the Bible, God, speak. Become to me like a consuming flame. Purge me, cleanse me, refine me, Be alive in me. And when we do that, the prophet Isaiah says that the word that God has sent will not return empty. It will do what it has been called to do and sent to do. And that is to make you and I more like Christ. What I've asked the band to do is to come back and I just want them to play that song again. Word of God speak pour down like rain. And as they sing this song, let's engage with it and let our response, our singing, be our commitment to be a people who recognize that engaging with God in His Word is a bare minimum. And while radical to us right now, the great thing is, as God begins to work in us and we work with God, God is going to do such a work that the radical line will be changed. Let's go to God in prayer, shall we, as the band come back. Father, each of us here yearn to know you. And we thank you that because of the death the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of your son, Jesus Christ, that Christ event, the the penalty of sin has been paid and access is free. It's open, it's wide. And so, Father, we thank you that we can know you. And we thank you that you have given us your word through which we can not only know more about you, that can experience you. So we pray again, word of God, speak. Where we're dry, pour in running water. Where we're being pressed around and our mind is being battered with so many thoughts, assail those thoughts, Father, and bring us back into line with the mind of Christ. Oh God, we love you. And we just thank you for your incredible gifts to us. Do that work in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name.